Welcome to the Akashic Reading Podcast, presented by AkashicReading.com, the place where you can learn to access your soul's wisdom, or at least stop digging the hole any deeper. I'm your host, Terry Octana, and today we'll be talking about how many guides we have, what roles they play in our lives, and how to communicate with them consciously and get real-time responses. Embodiment is not the soul's natural state. As souls, we live the majority of our existence free from encasement, communicating through thought and feeling, fully interconnecting with whatever it is we're interested in while still retaining our own identity. Becoming embodied is like putting on a spacesuit. Our mobility and senses are severely limited, our field of vision is restricted, and we rely as much on the information which is piped in as what we can glean through the suit. Luckily, we have a crack team of experts who have agreed to support us during this physical journey. They act as our eyes and ears, helping us understand and reach for the input which will get the job done. They try to keep us on track to meet our goals, monitor to make sure everything is working within specified parameters, and watch out for anomalies as well as the unexpected. They can't be embodied with us, but as much as they can, they work to assure the trip is successful and we make it home in one piece. Each living person has a team of guides, our entourage, as it were. They are beings who have agreed their sole purpose, while we're embodied, is to support us in this life. The average number of guides is three to seven, depending on the needs of the soul and the life they've planned. Most people never notice them because, like good backstage hands, guides work behind the scenes and try to keep themselves out of the way so the focus can be on the actors and the stage. These spirit guides are responsible for supporting various aspects of the embodied soul's experience. They're there to have our backs, fill in the gaps, help us to achieve what we're striving for at any given moment, try to keep us on the straight and narrow so we don't get too far off track, and provide the necessary stimulus for each phase of our embodied life, however we have it laid out. In general, all guides have to work within specific guidelines, The first and most important of all is they cannot take away our free will. We are not puppets they're controlling. Quite the opposite, in fact. We're free agents who can do whatever we wish in each moment. We're the ones in control, the ones in the driver's seat, and with boots on the ground, quite literally. Unless specifically contracted to do otherwise, guides are required to interact with us in a way which doesn't attract our conscious attention. No appearing visually to provide us messages from on high, writing things in the sand, dust or dirt in clear language, no whispering whole paragraphs in our ears like someone giving us the answers to the test on the sly or popping whatever tool we need into our hands like a genie. That would be cool, but would also interrupt what we're trying to do here. There is a caveat to this, though. If we consciously reach out to contact them, then they're allowed to interact with us more directly respond to requests, and become more directly involved in our life per our invitation. This is why it's important to know how to communicate clearly with them so we're able to give them the permission they need to more fully interact. The way to understand this is to think of your guides not as enlightened beings who are acting as authorities or parents to us, but instead as employees who we've hired to help us accomplish a task. We're the leader of our team and the only one with authority to determine how we are interacted with and how much. Pleas for our guides to take on this responsibility will go unheeded since they can't. They're here to support us, but not to co-opt our lives. 
In general, people don't recognize the communication and support they get from their guides because it isn't dramatic, like a book pushed off a shelf right in front of their feet or a voice talking in their ear. It comes in the form of intuition, dreams, synchronicities, and coincidence. Some people have found means of consciously connecting with their guides, but the communication can be limited. They use pendulums or dowsing to ask yes-no questions, find answers to the questions they pose in street signs, songs on the radio or passages in books they're reading, or are surprised by a message from a friend, which is obviously a direct response to their spiritual request. I call this grouping of communication methods charades because it has much the same quality of guesswork. You pose the question, get an answer or a part of an answer, and then have to puzzle out what the full meaning is. Like any team, each guide will take on a specific role or set of responsibilities for their person. Although they work interconnectedly with all the others, and often the issue needs the input of more than one guide working together to resolve. The most common roles are physicality, making sure the physical body works within the specified parameters. This doesn't necessarily mean staying healthy. The body is required to signal when we're out of balance, making choices counter to our best interests, or straying from our soul path. It's also meant to support emotional processing, participate in deep healing of negativity, and encourage soul growth, all of which can cause what appear to be health crises. Our physical guide monitors this while trying to help us understand what's happening and what it all means. As a side note, for those who need one, this is the guide who shows up in childhood as our invisible friend, or the advisor when our psychic gifts remain on after age 7. They're also often what is being described when, as a child, we see our guardian angel. Then there's the relationship guide. This guide supports us in all levels of connection. They work to position us so we're in the right place at the right time to meet someone we have a contract with. They also help us write contracts on the fly when an unexpected opportunity arises. They amplify and refine the energetic signal we put out when we're attempting to connect with a certain type of person or activity. This makes them part of the synchronicity when a job opportunity, a trip, or some other desire manifests perfectly. The next is logistics. Helping us to manifest the physical things we need to survive and thrive, this guide works within the choices and parameters we set to make sure we have food, shelter, clothing, transportation, and so on. They monitor the systems we're working with and help us to navigate them, whether this be legal, medical, corporate, religious, family, or anything else structural we interact with. Our personal spiritual path guide makes sure we keep in alignment with our soul during the journey. This isn't necessarily about enlightenment, about remembering a higher self, or releasing to the next level of beingness. For some embodied beings, this is simply about being here and following through on the role, lesson, or challenge the soul has agreed to. For others, it's about remembering who they are and incorporating a more full understanding of what it means to be. And finally, there's the spiritual service guide. For those who come not for their own lessons or becoming, but to be in service to others, a guide will have been selected to support them in adding this aspect into their embodied life. As service comes in every form from energy healer to NGO worker, nonprofit executive to therapist, soup kitchen employee to architect, the guide provides support to the soul in finding the best means for doing their chosen service. This includes helping them select from a variety of options, finding the right avenues to pursue within that option, and then implementing. 
Each of us is capable of increasing our level of access to our guides and facilitating the communication process. But before delving into the how, it's helpful to look at the who. Each of our spirit guides is a person. They're a unique individual with their own experiences, personality, and capabilities. In embodied life, the way in which we identify individuals is by name. And this is one of the first things we ask for or look into when attempting to connect with a spirit guide. What's their name? And it's something which trips people up on a regular basis. Because names are unique to embodied existence. When communication is through thought and feeling, when an intimate conversation means interpenetrating each other, who you are is your name. There is no other soul but you, so there's no confusion in who you are or need to represent yourself in symbolic form. Names are a means for souls who communicate in linear time via physical expression to indicate which individual they're referring to or who they are separate from others. We're taught this means of expression and interacting with our world almost immediately through repetition, associating the being who is caring for us as mama or dada. By the time we're seeking conscious connection with our guides, our desire to know who they are by knowing a name is instinctive. So when a guide is asked what their name is, they have a range of choices. To provide their true name is to present us with direct, unmediated connection to themselves. The Bible describes this experience when discussing how people are unable to look at angels directly because their light is too bright and their face is too overwhelming. This violates the communication requirement of non-intrusion, so they don't engage at that level. Some choose the simple expedient of taking on what we would think of as a nickname. They choose something easy for their person to pronounce, which promotes a feeling of camaraderie, while at the same time representing a bit of their own personality and their role. Hence, there are quite a number of guides with names like Chuck, Roger, Claire, and so on. Guides sometimes choose to use their title rather than a nickname, but the effect is the same. If they work in the Angel Corps under the auspices of the Archangel Michael, they might call themselves Michael. The same for any of the corps like those working under Gabriel, Raphael, or Uriel. Some guides choose to use a name they've acquired through their own embodied experience. Usually, this is a name they have pleasant associations with and which is pronounceable and understandable to their person. There's no use in using a name which the person can't pronounce and even understand clearly unless you want frustration or a sitcom type of humorous experience. When offered a preference of identification, guides choose to be represented visually. The way in which we process visual information is much more akin to the holistic communication methods souls use when in their natural state. With a visual, we take in not only data, but we react emotionally and are able to connect spiritually. We're moved on multiple levels simultaneously and so able to understand more comprehensively even if we are not conscious of doing so. This is why guides, when asked the question of who they are, often present a visual image. They may choose something which is non-gender specific or a gender which effectively represents the role they play for their person. They may associate themselves with a character from TV, movies, or books, someone from our past, a historical figure which helps us understand their personality, someone like an icon allows us to access an app or program. The visual naming mode extends into the physical. Like icons or devotional candles, from medallions to be worn or figurines representing the deities, physical representations allow us to focus our thoughts and our communications with beings who are not physically embodied. 
They facilitate relationship by bringing the being into our lives in a tangible way. This also works well for our spirit guides. A physical object can be selected which then represents a spirit guide just like a bowl of water can be used as a representation of the ocean or a candle to symbolize the element fire. Asking a guide what they would like to be represented by can facilitate closer relationship and communication. What they prefer, how they help you acquire or create it, and how it is to be utilized provide deep levels of connection and meaning about who they are and who they are to you. This process can then be expanded on to create new ways of communicating and relating. Representations of each guide who works with you can be set up as an altar or in a place dedicated to meditation and reflection. This can be as simple as setting things on a windowsill or nestling them on your desk. Once the items are situated, they serve as a focal point, much like a smartphone which has your guide's contact information programmed. Looking at the items or spending time with it focuses your thoughts and energy so communication becomes much clearer. It also puts you in a better space to receive response clearly and in a more timely fashion. There are more direct means of communicating with guides, but developing and using them can be problematic. Some people have a natural aptitude for clear audience and so can hear their guides and other beings in real time as they go about their lives. Not everyone has this fully developed ability and those who do can't always control it. It can get stuck on, meaning they hear everything all the time. Or it can be what is thought of as a wild talent, only working when it wants and often when less than convenient. Some people have the ability to see guides and communicate with them in real time, which suffers from the same issues as clairaudience. Automatic writing can be a bit easier, but requires the person to focus, meaning they can't do anything else in the moment. You know, don't automatic write and drive. In the end, if we're interested in communicating consciously with the beings who support us in this embodied life, we'll find a means which works for us and for them. For those just starting to look for a means of communicating with their guides, or for my students and clients who are frustrated with the methods they're using, I recommend they invite their guides to a conversation in their Akashic room. Each of us, during embodied life, has an Akashic room, this is a room set aside specifically for us. No one may enter it without our permission. It reflects the life we're leading in each moment and supports us in engaging more fully not only in the practicalities of living, but of incorporating our spiritual path and the true nature of our soul into those practicalities. It's a place where we can investigate current problems, learn about the reason why we're embodied, what is possible for us in this lifetime, conceive of and work through manifesting things into being, and so much more. Most Akashic rooms are somewhat open floor plan, but divided by furniture into functional areas. Some have beds, dining tables, conference room and workshop corners, and most have sitting areas for two or more people. These can look like little seating groups similar to coffee shops or full-on living rooms. Many have chairs facing fireplaces, these are great areas to begin exploring communication with Akashic beings. Inviting a being to your Akashic room is incredibly simple. All of my students do this automatically with each lesson. The guided meditation tells them an animal guide will greet them, and just hearing this intention sends the energetic invitation so the guide is there when the person arrives. It's not necessary to know the name of the spirit guide you wish to work with, but it is good to specify the type or area of responsibility they have in relationship to you. In the case of class meditations, 
The invitation to the student's animal guide allows an animal guide to choose to work with them if one isn't already doing so, or an entire group to do so on a rotating basis and so forth. For example, setting the intention to invite any of your personal guides who is interested or willing to work with you in this way means those beings who work with you specifically can choose singly or en masse to come meet you as it works best for them and for you. I don't recommend inviting just any being who wishes to work with you to your room. This is a bit like the difference between sending a party invitation specifically to Mr. and Mrs. Smith versus one to occupant. Either the Mr. or the Mrs. could answer the invitation and either would be welcome and appropriate, but occupant is an open invitation to absolutely anyone, which often isn't helpful and can be a waste of time. Conversations with spirit guides or any beings in the Akashics follow social rules similar to those we use here in embodied life. When you invite someone into your home, they're your guest and you're the host. Conventions vary, but in general, a host is expected to provide hospitality, set the tone for the visit, and lead the conversation, at least initially. In the Akashics, this means guides will wait patiently until they're spoken to. They won't burst in with a message or reams of information to impart. If asked, what do I need to know, they often remain mute because there really isn't anything the person needs to know, and the room's person invited them, not the other way around. Most conversations in embodied life start with a greeting. If we know the person, this is just an acknowledgement, whether a nod, a handshake, or a hug. If we don't, then introductions need to happen. Because we're encased in bodies, and most of us are neither telepathic nor are truly emotionally fluent as empaths, we're relegated to using names, a series of sounds and symbols expressed in a linear manner as a means of expressing who we are. In the Akashics, no such formula is necessary. Without encasement, a being expresses who they are by fully being what they are. This makes for interesting and sometimes confusing interactions between spirit guides and embodied beings as expectations and communication styles clash. What I suggest for my students, rather than ask the name of the being they're meeting, is they ask how the being is related to them or what role they play for the student in this embodiment. The conversation usually flows from there. For those who haven't taken my classes, I've created a guided meditation which you can find on my website on the freebies page with several other meditations. I've put a link to it in the description. And that's all the time we have this week. If you're interested in knowing more, check out my website, akashicreading.com. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it by subscribing on Patreon. You can see all my other offerings and get regular updates about what I'm working on at patreon.com slash Thanks. Bye.